I'm Erica Senor. I'm Nick Weiler. And I'm Forrest Coleman. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience, brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is George Vidal, a fourth-year graduate student in Carla Schatz's lab here at Stanford. Thanks for joining us today, George. Yeah, it's a pleasure. First off, George, could you actually say your full name for us? <laughs> yeah, it consists of four parts. Okay. First part, George. Second part, Sebastia, which is my grandfather's first name. Third part is Vidal. And the fourth part is Perez Trevino, which is my mother's last name. So you're originally from Spain? No, I was born and raised in the U.S. My parents were born and raised in Mexico. And a few of my grandparents were born and raised in Spain. Ah, okay. So. We have the makings for your favorite cocktail in front of you here. Can you tell us what it is? And I mean, there's not really much to making it, but we'll have, have you make one for yourself and, and to Nick. That's right. Okay, so you were very generous to me and brought a big bottle of chartreuse, of green chartreuse. This is a liquor that is made by Carthusian monks in France. It is 55% alcohol by volume, and it is an infusion of more than 100 different alpine herbs. It's also very sweet, and all I wanted to do was have a little bit of chartreuse with some ice. It doesn't really need much more fixing up than that. Okay, that sounds delicious. How did I hear you describing the flavor outside? So it's It tastes like you're inhaling a pine forest. <laughs> yeah, That sounds lovely. So yeah. when was the first time you had chartreuse? Chartreuse, uh, I think I had it about three years ago. And uh, I was sitting outside on the patio with my dad. We decided to get this together. Yeah, we poured a little bit of it and found it to be really different from anything that we had ever tasted before. And we had a very long discussion after that, which was a lot of fun. So, What is the type of discussion that Sartreuse tends to elicit? I, I want to sort of preview for what I should expect. It was a very philosophical discussion. <laughs> <I> yeah. <see. laughs> Uh, it was about family. It was about philosophy. It was about morality. It's, it's amazing how much I remember of this conversation. So it's a, it's a deep thinking drink is what you're saying. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> I, I only have experience, you know, with a couple of shots of chartreuse, so I don't really know if that's its nature or not. All right. Well, it looks beautiful. It's this sort of pale green color. I can see the little swirls of... I don't know. Um, That's the alcohol and the sugar in there. Alcohol and the sugar, yeah. It looks mm -hmm. delicious. All right, well, cheers. Cheers. I can see the pine forest, sort of a sugar-coated pine forest. Yeah, very sweet. It's very minty. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Mm. It clears your breath and any ailments <laughs> you might have. So. That's like the perfect alcohol <laughs> beverage to yeah. have for any Asian. <laughs> Right before a date. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm. And actually, the, the pale green color that you were saying is, in English, it's, that color is called chartreuse because the drink is so reproducible with that color. A lot of people like to paint their walls with chartreuse. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, with the drink? Well, you, can, you, could, you could do that if you want to. Depends how much you drink. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, now that we've got some delicious chartreuse, taste of pine forest in our mouths. Let's <laughs> use those mouths to chat about the brain a little bit. Absolutely. So, George, you study neural plasticity. This has been an important topic in neuroscience for some time, and it's sort of made its way into the popular press. Could you describe in your own words what it means that the brain is plastic? Neural plasticity is a huge topic. So you could say 
the broadest definition of neuroplasticity is just how the brain changes to anything that's different that's coming into it. So it could be learning, you know, learning a new language, learning a new task, learning how to play the piano. It could also be the formation of memory. So how uh, we take something new that we've seen today and uh, keeping it in our memories for a little while. Is plasticity the same as memory? Well, one of the first things that was discovered about neuroplasticity is that the connections that we have in our brain to facilitate memories can strengthen or they can weaken. And uh, if you want to retain a memory for a long time, then it's a good idea to strengthen the connection that has to do with that memory. If you don't want to remember anymore, or at least if your brain doesn't want to remember anymore, then it will weaken that synapse. So it seems that uh, learning and memory has a lot to do with the strengthening and weakening of individual synapses in our brain. So the ability to learn is essentially just the the changing of connection. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Mm -hmm. The sort of controversial naysayer may say, well, what about changing, you know, things other than connection? Cells can change their intrinsic properties or whatnot. Why do we think that synaptic more than than other things? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I think that sort of explains why I wanted to say that the strengthening and, and weakening of connections, synaptic plasticity is just one of the ways that we can explain neuroplasticity. One of the other ways that we're exploring in the lab. I'm not really involved with this as much, but we're really interested in figuring out how the balance of cells that are excitatory in nature versus those that are inhibitory, how they interact with each other to help us learn more in the cortex, which is actually the part of the brain that I'm working on. So if you're a neuroscientist trying to study plasticity, there are kind of three basic camps of methodologies that people use. So one is they just look at a kind of behavioral plasticity. They see that the animal can learn to do something or that when they shut an eye, they see some sort of change in the way the animal behaves. Mm -hmm. The other way is that, you know, you stick an electrode into the brain and you see that something changed about the way the brain responds. Or, and if you're talking about synaptic plasticity, you go and you measure a functional electrophysiological signal of the way in which two neurons are communicating and you see that communication change, either get stronger or weaker or something. Mm -hmm. And then the other way is that people are are peering into the brain now and looking for structural changes. For example, you collaborate with Yi Zhou at UC Santa Cruz, and Mm -hmm. she uses this fancy two-photon microscope to peer into the brain and actually watch the little dendritic spines, these little protrusions off off the dendrite that make most of the connections grow and shrink and come and go. Right. But there's a kind of, I think, a big question about particularly how those last two things relate. How does the changing in synaptic strength and the functional signals that you see relate to the, the structural changes that Yi, Zhou, and other people like her can see? So what do you think about this? It's a more specific framing of a much older question, which is how the anatomy of brain cells and even the brain itself, how that relates to the function of of the cells. And, but getting to this specific question, yeah, you know, if you look at a dendritic spine, which is thought to be the postsynaptic portion of a synapse, and seeing how it gets you know, bigger or smaller, if it's formed or eliminated, what that has to do with the sorts of electrical impulses that it's been receiving from its presynaptic partner. And that's something that I'm trying to figure out because of this, first of all, we have this collaboration with ISO, which has been amazing, and our own lab, which has been focusing a lot on the electrophysiology of connections between cells in the visual cortex. And I don't think we have yet the experiment in the lab that really 
nails it, you know, and that really nails down the question of, well, I just, you know, stimulated the the cell in this way and that synapse in that way and therefore the synapse got stronger and therefore the dendritic spine that is associated with that synapse got even bigger. We haven't done that series of experiments that really shows how one synapse's structure can be affected by activity onto it. But we have a few interesting ways of looking at it and one of the ways that we've been trying lately it's kind of a weird thing that goes on in dendritic spines and that is that in living tissue, uh, dendritic spines move around a lot and they're just constantly moving. Even spines that don't seem to be changing very much in strength, they sort of wiggle around. If you take a look at these under two-photon microscope for a long time, then you can see that all of this wiggling is happening on almost every single dendritic spine. So why is that wiggling surprising to you? It's very surprising because I thought that some spines, for example, would be very important for retaining maybe a specific kind of information. And so when you think of the synapse that has to be stable over a period of maybe weeks or months or even years, you wouldn't expect that synapse to be moving around at all. You would hope for it to stay in one place. It seems like it could be that the brain just kind of wobbles. Mm -hmm. You know, there's blood flow, there's breathing, there's all kinds of stuff that's going on. And, and, you know, maybe there's some motion artifact or something. But the brain is jello-like, right? It can wobble. (laughs) Are all the spines doing it together as if there's some local shift that's going on just with the whole dendrite? Or is it very different for different spines? Yeah, it's it's very different. Uh, Some spines just really reach out and then they come back in to their original place. Some of them are wiggling around, you know, left to right. Other ones are just staying in place and and changing maybe a little bit, but, but not too much. And so this seems to be something that is controlled almost individually in every spine. So some spines will move and wiggle around a lot. Other spines will stay put a little bit more. But yeah, we also see a lot of motion coming from other sources. You know, like if we are taking a picture of a dendrite that's very close to a blood vessel, then the blood vessel will introduce a lot of motion that cannot be attributed to the individual spines. Right. So the first surprising thing was this wiggling. And the second surprising thing was that our wiggling (laughs) that we observed could be modulated by a protein that is very important in controlling the amount of synaptic plasticity in the visual cortex. So suddenly when this protein that we discovered is no longer there, then all of the spines sort of They don't stop moving, but they definitely wiggle a lot less than in normal brains. So what do you think is the function of the wiggling? So I'm about to do an experiment that will help figure out what this wiggling actually is. But our current hypothesis is that whenever a synapse needs to be formed or eliminated from the dendrite, there needs to be some wiggling available. (laughs) That's one way to, to put it. In order for the synapse to actually be eliminated, because if the spines are static all the time, then even if the synapse weakens and there's signals for that spine to be eliminated, maybe it can't because there's actually a part of the cytoskeleton inside of the cell that prevents it from moving back into the dendrite and being eliminated. So to us, this wiggling, this motility that we see in the spines 
has a lot to do with maybe it signals a more fluid cytoskeleton inside that would facilitate the addition or the elimination of dendritic spines as needed by the brain. So do you see a noticeable or an appreciable difference between the type of motility you see in these adult neurons and these adult spines compared to spines that are just developing as the brain develops? So I haven't seen this with my own eyes. I've only read papers about it. But some people say that in younger brains, as the brain is developing, the spines move around a lot more. Uh, and then once you reach adulthood, they, they sort of freeze up a little bit more and become less plastic, so to speak. Uh, and you think that's because they're just less turnover in an adult brain? Yeah, there is less turnover of spines in, in the brain. So, yeah, it, it kind of goes together. Mm-hmm. Circling back to the bigger question, I guess my sense is listening to your answer that you kind of feel like that structural changes and the functional changes really are maybe much more tied together than people might think. Yeah, I'm sure that once we get really good tools and we've started to get amazing tools for looking at individual spines, the electrical activity that's going on in that spine and being able to track the shape and and the length of all of these spines over time, we'll get a very good idea of how related they really are. I really think they will be. I would bet a bottle of chartreuse on this. (laughs) So I think neuroscientists tend to use the words learning and memory sort of interchangeably with each other. Do you think these are the same thing? We're talking about the same neuronal processes that you know, maybe the difference is just time scale. <laughs> so learning, memory, and the word plasticity, I think they're all very quickly changed up by scientists, by non-scientists, uh, just because it's really hard to define what all of these things actually are. You know, if we were talking about plasticity and we noticed that we have synaptic plasticity, which is one form of it or maybe one part of it, and many other kinds of plasticity. And I think that also goes with learning and memory. There's just many different kinds of learning and many different kinds of memory that it's hard to keep track of all of them. So it's very easy, I think, to make these words interchangeable. So you'd say we, at this point, we don't exactly have a good understanding of what is a memory. Yeah, I, I think that's very fair to say. We have some good ideas of what it might be and what it could consist of, but I think we're a long way from really understanding the essence of of what it really means. Do you have a pet theory or a question that you'd really like to know? And this doesn't necessarily have to be the question you'd like to solve this year, but maybe the question you'd like to solve in 15 years or 30 years if you keep at it. So with regards to memory, I think one of the most interesting things to me is that the main part of the brain that's devoted to memory, the hippocampus, is only part of the story. And the other part of the story is the cortex, the cerebral cortex. And that keeps so much information that's essential for memory. And we just really don't know very much, if anything, about how memories are really formed in the cortex. Also, the cortex is made up of six different layers of cells, all composed of different kinds of inhibitory and excitatory cells. It's a very diverse population in in the cortex. So one of the most exciting things, I think, maybe this is the question that I would want to, to have answered in 20 years, is how all of these layers and all of these different populations, these different kinds of cells work together to form a memory and how all of that is is recruited by the brain whenever we try to recall a memory as well. 
So part of the work that you do revolves around a protein called PERB that seems to interfere with the brain's plasticity, which could hypothesize that this would make learning something more difficult. Yet despite this, it appears to be an important part of normal development. Why do you think that is? The way I explain this to people, and this is the first question that we get always uh-huh. uh, from anyone who first hears about this protein PERB and how it sort of restricts or puts a break on neuroplasticity. And you could think about it by saying, well, if we didn't have any break at all, if we just had plasticity, you know, through the roof, we could learn a language, say Korean, and, you know, the next morning we would wake up and we wouldn't know Korean anymore because our brain would decide, well, I'm learning other things now. I'm going to the lab and I'm learning how to image spines. And and so that's more important. And so I'm going to devote my computational power to understanding how, how to do this task rather than how to speak Korean. So I think that it's sort of like when your brain is developing and sort of gels into a position that gives you the information that you need to recall in order to operate normally in your adult life. Do people think there's a limit to what the brain can learn, what the capacity is? <laughs> if you permit me to brag a little bit, I think that the mice that we have that are that are missing this protein under many, many different measures, both behavioral and synaptic plasticity measures, they really have insane amounts of plasticity. You know, even adult mice that, that don't have this molecule have as much or even more plasticity than younger animals that are that have normal brains. And so hopefully someone can prove us wrong, but we think that we've found something that really brings the amount of plasticity to its upper limit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. George, I'm curious. Do you remember the first experiment that you ever did? I don't mean to put a precise definition on it. Maybe it was when you were in elementary school in your head or maybe it was in college. Yeah, this actually was in elementary school. And basically during recess, we had a good hour of recess. It was a great elementary school. We had actual time to play with our friends and our classmates and deal with people that were around us. A group of us from my class would get together and instead of you know going on the monkey bars or the slides or things like that, which we would do from time to time, instead we decided that this piece of shale rock that was on the side of the playground was supremely fascinating. And we spent the entire recess just taking little pieces of shale and picking at the shale to pry off this shale. If you've ever come across shale, it's it's very layered rocks that you can take away these layers. And so one of my friends had pried off a rock and saw that one of the sides was very, very black and shiny. And so he quickly declared that he had found oil and that he was going to be rich. And he claimed that rock and... It was, yeah, so... Did he patent the process of finding oil by... by He he did not. He did not, which I was very, very thankful for. And the other thing was that I didn't want to let him be rich and, you know, know, be left out of it. So I just wanted to make sure that he had really found the oil or not. And uh, so we got together and, and we said, all right, if this is really oil, then oil is probably like, you know, the grease that we encounter, the other kinds of oil. So it probably 
is dissolved with soap and water. And we took some of these rocks and ones that had oil on them, ones that didn't have oil on them, and we we washed them t- just to see what would happen. And none of them washed off. I still don't actually know. I have to talk to a geologist about this because I don't know what that black, shiny substance is on the rock. I was but hoping for fire. Yeah, no, we... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, I I have very little understanding of shale rocks. <laughs> but at least based off of that experiment, we quickly, uh, our, our dreams of striking it rich on the playgrounds uh, quickly faded. Yeah. Unlike the oil. Unlike the oil. So now we'd like to play a little game, which we are calling Not My Field. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to give you the names of three papers, and it's your job to tell us which of the papers is the real paper. Oh, boy. <laughs> are you ready? Uh, as ready as I can be. Yeah. Excellent. We've got our refills. <laughs> That's so right. Hopefully this will give us fortitude to... This is a lot stronger without ice in it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, our listeners will probably have to excuse us if we, we, we have to clear our throats a little bit more <laughs> in this portion. Open my sinuses right up, so I'm wow. feeling good. <laughs> that is like just stuffing a tree down your... Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so question number one. Option A. Are full or empty beer bottles sturdier... And does their fracture threshold suffice to break the human skull? Hmm. Option B, temperature of caffeinated beverages is positively correlated with latency to initiate consumption. (laughs) Or C, happy as a clam, exploring the correlation between suicide rate and fluctuations in population density of the soft-shell clam Maya arenaria. So which is the real paper? Which is the real paper? One is true, two are false. You made up the other two options? They were made up. And they were made up. Interesting use of the passive voice. <laughs> <laughs> Making up was done. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Option C, I'll go with. So you think happy is a clam? Yeah. I'll read you the abstract. Okay. So, Bulliger and colleagues in the Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine, beer bottles are often used in physical disputes. If the bottles break... They may give rise to sharp trauma. However, if the bottles remain intact, they may cause blunt injuries. (laughs) In order to investigate whether full or empty, standard half-liter beer bottles are sturdier, and if the necessary breaking energy surpasses the minimum fracture threshold of the human skull, we tested the fracture properties of such beer bottles in a drop tower. The conclusion of this paper was that both are capable of fracturing the human skull. <laughs> so don't get into a bar fight. <laughs> if it's real, it's good to know. Yeah, it's yeah. Really good to know. Okay, so the second set of papers. Which of these is a title of a real scientific paper? The Objective of Human Striving. Or B, Clouds Shaped Like Animals, a meta-analysis. Or C, The Nature of Naval Fluff. The Nature of Naval Fluff? The Nature of Naval Fluff. <laughs> what is the... As, f- it, as in... Belly button, right, not, right, not, not ocean. What, what, what is the first option? The objective of human striving. I'd go with option A. Okay, so so from from the abstract, hard facts on soft matter. In the popular scientific book by Leiner and Goldberg, why do men have nipples? Hundreds of questions you'd only ask a doctor after your third martini. Uh, <laughs> New York Press. Leiner and Goldberg raised the question of why some belly buttons collect so much lint. They were, however, not able to come up with a satisfactory answer. The hypothesis presented herein says that abdominal hair is mainly responsible for the accumulation of navel lint, which, therefore, this is a typically male phenomenon. 
The abdominal hair collects fibers from cotton shirts and directs them into the navel where they are compacted uh, to a felt-like matter. <laughs> the most abundant individual mass of a piece of lint was found to be between 1.2 and 1.2 milligrams, N equals 503. Wow. <laughs> However, due to se- several much larger pieces, the average mass was 1.82 milligrams in the three-year study. When the abdominal hair is shaved, no more lint is collected. What kind Old- of hair? <laughs> abdominal? You said abdominal. <laughs> Chartreuse might be getting to me. Yeah. <laughs> when the abdominal abdominal hair is shaved, no more lint is collected. Old t-shirts or dress shirts produce less navel fuzz than brand new t-shirts. Using elemental analysis, it could be shown that cotton lint contains a certain amount of foreign material, supposedly cutaneous scales, fat, or proteins. Incidentally, lint might thus fulfill a cleaning function for the navel. Huh. Interesting. So, so, in fact, the nature of naval fluff. I do want to read The Objective of Human Striving. I think that would be a very good, good paper to I read. think you need to write it first. I'll need to write yeah. it first. <laughs> okay, so, so, so far, two questions, no right answers yet. All right, question three. Choice A, head lice prefer the blood of children with higher IQs. Option B, the postman always rings twice. The incidence of obsessive-compulsive disorder in government employees. Or option C, Optimizing the sensory characteristics and acceptance of canned cat food. Use of a human taste panel. Option B. Option B. The postman always rings twice. I'm going to read you from the abstract from the correct answer. Okay. Included in this method is development of evaluation protocols for homogeneous products and for binary samples containing both meat chunk and gravy gel constituents. (laughs) Abbreviated MC and GG. (laughs) Using these techniques, 18 flavor attributes, sweet, sour acid, tuna, herbal, spicy, soy, salty, cereal, caramel, chicken, methionine, vegetable, oh my goodness. awfully, meaty, burnt flavor, prawn, rancid, and bitter, and four texture dimensions, hardness, chewiness, grittiness, and viscosity, were generated to describe the sensations elicited by 13 commercial pet food samples. I don't think wine tasting is that rigorous. <laughs> and uh, by the way, wow. o- o- awfully is um, organ meat tasting. Oh, okay. Okay, so you need to now use some of these flavor attributes to describe what the chartreuse tastes like. Go. <laughs> Rancid. <laughs> oh, uh, come on. Herbal is yeah. <laughs> Herbal and... Uh, Ca- maybe caramel? It's not quite caramel. Not quite caramelly. Definitely sweet. Definitely sweet. Uh, herbal. I guess that's it. Maybe a little spicy. I think that's like the alcohol has that little kick to yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have minty. Well, I don't know what methionine tastes like, so whatever that is. Let's just say that's what it tastes like. like, I think it's bad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. (laughs) Do you want to read the last couple of bits of the? Oh, sure. Okay, so principal components analysis could successfully discriminate between samples within the principal components analysis space and also reveal some groupings among them. It is now necessary to determine the usefulness and limits of sensory data gathered from human panels in describing and predicting food acceptance and preference behaviors in cats. <laughs> this is a very important study. This is very important. Um, they really did principal component analysis? They did. <laughs> That's amazing. This was in 2008, so I'm really curious to see what the follow-up was. <laughs> I mean, it seems like clearly the, the, the optimal thing to do would be just to sort of pairwise comparison which food does the cat prefer to eat. 
Right. But that obviously gets expensive. Right. You know, when you have 15, that's a lot of comparisons. Of So they're just hoping to use humans as sort of cat slaves <laughs> to sort of shortcut this this very onerous process of pairwise comparison in order to predict the sort of optimal cat flavor. Wait, now who is this by? George Meow and Collins? <laughs> Wait, did they, did they say which which was the best? Did I miss that? I, I think you have to subscribe to the journal oh, in order to get <laughs> such, <laughs> such, such. How am I going to know what to have facts. for dinner? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sorry. You weren't, you weren't lucky that time, but mm-hmm. next time we play the game, I'm sure. I'll try to improve. Yeah, this was a hard one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just, just so you feel a little bit, a, a little bit smaller. Nick Steinmetz went, I think, two for three. Two for oh, three. Oh boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. You used to tell him that. No one needs to compare themselves to Nick Steinmetz. <laughs> So I heard at one point that you were considering going to divinity school to become a priest after you finished your PhD, which I thought was an unusual path. I would be very curious to hear about how religious and scientific philosophies interact for you. How do they relate to one another and influence you? That's a really good question. And yeah, to sort of refine what you've heard. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm thinking after graduation at some point, um, I'm not sure when, I'm thinking of entering the seminary or even a monastery. Uh, so, you know, the difference is that if you go to seminary, you study theology, philosophy, and after that, you're ordained a priest. Whereas if you choose to go to a monastery, you take vows of poverty and chastity and obedience. And make lots of chartreuse. And make chartreuse if you're, <laughs> if you're lucky to be in the monastery of La Grande Chartreuse. Yeah, uh, you know, one of those. And I'm still not sure which, which one it'll be. But yeah, it'll be a, a sort of religious life, I guess. And I think a lot of this is definitely very personal belief and faith in things in a way that I wouldn't be able to describe in 10 minutes or even an hour or two if we had it. Though this is the kind of thing that we were talking about when my father and I had this chartreuse. So anyway, I think faith for me came a bit independently of whether or not I I was in science. The big experience of faith happened uh, for me in college and it didn't really feed into whether or not I wanted to do science. Science for me was always a passion and uh, I've always loved to discover new things about the world and nature. So when this faith experience, this conversion, if you will, happened, I, I didn't think it, it really affected my, my science in, in any way. But it, it happened in the reverse, which was that suddenly the things that I started doing in the lab and, and seeing the science that I was doing fed into this new faith that I received. And this isn't unique to me. I think a lot of people before me have seen this as well. One of my favorite people in the world, he's dead now, but uh, he's still one of my favorites, St. Augustine. And he also converted pretty late. I think he was in his college years or you know, the equivalent of, of such in the 300s or 400s, I don't remember. And yeah, when he looked at nature, he saw an incredible amount of beauty in it. And when he tried to think about it with the faith that he had, he could only see that beauty was, and the beauty of creation was a way that that only strengthened his faith in something much, much larger than anything that we can conceive of. And for me, when I'm in the lab doing an experiment, seeing a beautiful cell, or even the sort of logic that underlies something 
like synaptic strengthening and weakening. To me, that's actually a, a spiritual experience in a way, um, because it, it is something so beautiful. And I believe that there is a source of this beauty. And so it feeds into, into that faith that I have. So why do you think it's so difficult for other people to have such a harmonious relationship between the two? I mean, personally, I'm an atheist, but I sort of squirm at people's arguments that you can't be a scientist and be religious. Like, they seem like they have almost nothing to do with each other. I mean, exactly what you were saying, science just sort of reinforces your faith, vice versa as well. So Mm -hmm. why do you think it's so difficult for people to have this harmonious relationship where they're always constantly trying to pit these two things against each other? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it has a lot to do with misunderstanding of either science or a misunderstanding of faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one, one of those two. And usually it ends up being a little bit of both. And I think that for me, the, the best example of how bad it really gets is the creationism versus evolution debate. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, I, I can't understand it, really, because... Yeah. So let me just play the devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah. You know, the thousand-mile view would be, well, it's pretty simple. The Bible <laughs> said that God created man, and evolution says that man was created randomly from apes. Right, right. right. Seems pretty simple. I mean, so so why, where, how do I... How do I how am I going wrong with that? Good. That, okay. That view. That, very good way to frame it because I think that you're going wrong with two things. The faith part. I believe that the Bible is not a set of fables and and myths that we should read literally and say, ah, yes, of course, the the sun did reverse its course, or uh, or I ah, yes, of course, the the world was created in seven in six days. Sorry, uh, and and God rested on the seventh um, what you know whatever that means in the literal sense I have no idea you know I believe in in this case that the Bible is a form of literature a, a piece of sacred scripture that is so much deeper than that and and requires so much more understanding and and meditation on before really coming to a, a proper conclusion on it and the same goes with the other side you know uh, Maybe your quote was something like, we randomly came from apes, right? Yeah, and sure. do you really believe that we came randomly from apes? It's, it's a very uh, simplistic understanding of the process of evolution, right? And so in order to understand that, you really need to go into a very deeper level. And so for me, that's where all of this misunderstanding happens is, is that people just don't like to get deep into these sorts of things. And so it's really easy to say, oh, yeah, of course, you know, the Bible says six days, it's crazy. Nothing can be made in six days. And then on the other hand, the creationist says, how can we come from apes? We, we were made by God on the sixth day. So clearly, you know, that's, that's wrong. I think that's a very, it's too simplistic of an approach. And going back to what Erica was saying, yeah, I think that there is no real conflict between having faith and also having faith in, in, in science and discovering the facts of nature around us. They, they should never conflict. Does it require that your faith be deeply personal? I mean, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that it's all about how you interpret the sacred texts and how you make sense of them personally after thought and meditation. But Mm -hmm. I think, I guess sometimes the problem comes from when it's an institutional interpretation, which is in conflict with the institution of science. That's a very good question, because I'm actually totally Catholic. And, uh, and so I belong to this big institution that has set forth quite 
clearly in in some instances and very unclearly in others. There's many things that are still up for grabs and and up for debate. But there are certain things in my faith, in my religion, if you want to put it that way, where things are are very clear. And truth is defined in this way, and you accept it or you don't. But what I found in this experience of my Catholic faith from the time that I converted until now, it's that, you know, I was very surprised, for example, when I was talking to a sister, a nun, who I talked to when I was thinking about taking my faith a little bit more seriously. And, you know, I asked her about this whole evolution thing, and because that's the first thing that you usually encounter if there's a, a conflict between um, religion and science or faith and science. And, And she said, of course, it doesn't matter by what means you're here. The Catholic Church doesn't believe that you should take the Bible literally and with specific interpretations. So a lot of these personal interpretations that I think that I've I've had align very well with the kinds of interpretations that my own church has had as well. So in that respect, it's deeply personal, but at the same time, it is actually pretty institutionalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I was in graduate school, I was part of a food co-op at the university I was at. That, mm-hmm. um, we cooked for each other every night. To completely overgeneralize, this food co-op was sort of composed of two groups. Mm-hmm. Um, there was sort of a group of people that really liked the idea of cooking for themselves. They were sort of more liberal, hippie types, so to speak. Uh-huh. And then there was a group of people who really didn't like the default social steen uh-huh. that existed, that surrounded around food, and they, they wanted to—this is at Princeton—they wanted to not— joined the eating club. They wanted to avoid that, but they still wanted to eat, and so yeah. they joined. And so it became a really interesting group of people to have discussions about, and, and this very topic mm-hmm. came up, I think, quite often, but maybe the most productive discussion that came out of that coalescing of these two disparate viewpoints was that both groups could agree about this idea, that there was a very similarity between a very scientific viewpoint and a, and a viewpoint of faith, in that someone of faith maybe should have absolute faith that there is a God but complete skepticism that he really understands that God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then in an analogy, a scientist has faith that there are laws that govern this universe, but that has complete skepticism as that he truly understands them. Do you agree with that? Uh, I, I think it's a... I mean, I'd have to think about it more, I think. But from the surface, it sounds like a great way to understand how someone with faith might be able to keep it, and a scientist would be able to keep up the job, the very frustrating job at times of being a scientist. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned when you were talking about your faith and how it interacts with your science is that it's about seeing beauty mm-hmm. and appreciating the sort of glory of the patterns that that we can discover. So mm-hmm. either with evolution or just looking at a single cell. Right. Is that part of what faith means to you or of what God means to you? Yeah, I mean, if you took away the part of beauty, then I would feel like I would be left with almost nothing. If I weren't able to see beauty around me in nature and in other people, then it would be really hard <laughs> to have any faith whatsoever. Just because you can be purely philosophical, you don't have to have faith about this, but, you know, you, you try to think of, of the sources of beauty or, uh, you know, immaterial things like uh, truth versus falsehood and things like that. And, yeah, it, it leads you to something greater than yourself. And whatever that is, you know, that depends on what faith you end up adopting, right? But, yeah, that part, beauty of 
of God and his creation to me is one of the biggest factors in my having faith. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, George. Yeah, it was a pleasure. It was my pleasure as well. And thanks for asking all of these really interesting questions. I hope that they helped us all reflect on uh, on some really cool things about about our human experience. Yeah, definitely. And thank you all for listening. Feel free to come and have a drink with us next time. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Nick Weiler, Forrest Coleman, and myself, with production help from Leslie Chang. Special thanks to KZSU Studio here at Stanford, where this program was recorded. For more information about Brains and Bourbon and Neurite West, please visit our website at neuritewest.stanford.edu, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, West. Brains and-